0: Whenever anyone famous, talented, or wealthy, and someone who seemingly is a a good person takes a highly public fall from grace, the world takes notice. The list is long. Richard Nixon, Lance Armstrong, Bill Cosby, Lindsay Lohan, Tiger Woods, Martha Stewart. The list goes on. These people's reputations were tarnished. Their integrity, if they had any, was lost. And like a a car accident or a train wreck, we can't tear our eyes away from the fallout. These are the stories that make headline news. Far more unheralded, are the stories of people who maintain their integrity throughout things. Or the stories of people, ordinary people like you and like me, whether standing or falling. So you don't need to be famous to fall or fail in your integrity. Likewise, you don't need to fight off huge scandals or corruption in order to maintain your integrity. Everyone in the world either has integrity or does not have integrity. Either your insides match up with your outsides or they do not. Either your, what you do lines up with what you say and what you believe or it does not. Either your life is marked by consistency Or it is not. Did you know that integrity is something that God wants us to have in our lives? It's his desire. He wants our public life and our private life and our inner life and our outer life to be one and the same. This is one of the major reasons that God was so pleased with the man we know as Job. God himself talked Job up. We saw this last week. He's blameless and upright or, or genuine and sincere. He fears God. He turns away from evil consistently, continually, with integrity. As you might imagine, often the absolute hardest time to maintain your integrity is during hard times. The... Difficult seasons of life are usually when cracks begin to show on our armor. When our resolve might crumble, or when we feel like giving up. But as we're going to find out, those are the times that are most important for us to hold on to our integrity. The fiercest. Because far more than our own reputations are at stake when we go through these times. If you have a Bible, please take it and turn with me to Job chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew in front of you, and it will be on page 417, Job chapter 2. Today, we continue our journey through this beautiful and challenging and at times very tragic book. But as you find your spot, let's... just pause first and we'll pray that we will see through the tragedy today to see the truths that it reveals for our lives. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word today, you really would speak to us through it, that your spirit would speak to every heart that is here, that we would hear your voice through what you have for us in your word. And then, once we hear from you, we pray that we would respond. That our lives would be shaped by what we hear and what we learn, what we understand today. We pray that you would help us understand. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't been with us the past two weeks, Job was quite the guy. We saw that Job was extremely godly, extremely wealthy, great family, happy, successful, you name it. God said himself that there is no one on the face of the earth like Job. He was the best. But then last week we watched as Job's perfect life horrifically collapsed and crumbled. In a matter of minutes, four total disasters hit Job, one immediately after the other. First, his hundreds of oxen and donkeys were stolen by a foreign army, and all the servants that were watching them were bloodily massacred. Second, his 7,000 sheep and hundreds of shepherds were burned alive in a wildfire. Third, all 500 of his camels were stolen and more servants were slaughtered. With each burst of this bad news, only one servant, one solitary servant survived to tell Job. His life's work, his livelihood had evaporated, along with hundreds of lives. And then the worst news came. All ten of his children had been at one house having a party, and that house had just got hit by a tornado or a dust storm, and it collapsed. And every single one of his kids was crushed to death. Dead. Gone. Never to hear them or touch them or see them again. None of us, I believe, can even fathom the the grief and sorrow and pain that Job was going through in these moments. But then, we saw Job's shocking response to all this tragedy. And it said this in chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So in the midst of all this tragedy, Job worshipped. Stunning. Since God had given him everything in the first place, he believed it was God's right, his prerogative, to take everything away if he so wished. And Job trusted God. And so he said, through the tears, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What Job didn't know And what we were privy to was what led up to these events. See, there was a confrontation in heaven between God and the devil, Satan. And God basically told Satan, have you noticed how great Job is? You notice how great he is? And Satan bantered back. It's like, Job's not that impressive. He's only great because you made him this way. Because you gave him everything. Because you protected him from me. You've given him everything on a silver platter. Nothing can go wrong in his life. That's why he's so good. But, take everything away. Take everything away from God. And then, see if he still fears you. See if he'll still worship you. God, surprisingly, agreed to this challenge. Basically said, go ahead, test him, we'll see. The surprising truth this revealed was what was really at stake here, and that is the glory of God. God's reputation and honor and integrity was attacked and called into question. Would anyone, would anyone, even God's greatest servant, worship God if they had nothing left? Was God worthy of worship in and of himself, regardless of his gifts? And so at the end of the day, Job passed the test. And God won the wager. And therefore, God was glorified. Job lost everything, and he still worshipped. So, God was still worthy even then. So, the next time Satan came before God, God essentially rubbed his wind in a bit. And this isn't wrong. Job had earned it, and and God deserved the glory. Look what God says, verse 1 in chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, "'From where have you come?' Satan answered the Lord and said, "'From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it.' And the Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job?' that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So, this situation is almost identical to chapter 1, right? Except that God added that one last comment in verse 3. He said, Job still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. So Job had remained consistent. He had maintained his integrity. After the tragedy, he kept doing what he had been faithfully doing before, praising God. It's consistent, had integrity. And God said that Job was still holding fast, his integrity, like it was something he was fiercely holding on to. Maybe you can picture like a rope. And Satan was trying to wrench the integrity right out of his hands, but Job kept holding on tight. He was not letting go, no matter what. God was still to be feared and worshipped. When we get to be like flies on the wall again for the scene in heaven... We can see how pleased God was with the way Job had passed the test, right? It shows how, how valuable Job's integrity was. It shows how it glorified God. And the same for us. Every day, we have opportunities to either worship and glorify God, ...or to give in to the sinful world's ways and diminish God's glory. We have constant opportunities to build up or hold on to our integrity. And we have constant opportunities to damage or lose our integrity. With every word we say... ...every thought, every action... Every website, our integrity hangs in the balance. With every blessing that we receive, the universe wonders, will we thank God? And with every hardship we receive, will we still bless God? Therefore, every moment of our lives, our integrity is in play. And if we fiercely guard our integrity, we have a glorious opportunity. And that's this. Maintaining our integrity is an opportunity to display God's glory. Maintaining, when we maintain our integrity, like Job, we have an opportunity to display God's glory. Many of us call ourselves Christians or believers, and that means we claim to be followers of God. But what that means is that everything we do or say actually reflects on the God we say we worship. Not, not that we can actually tarnish his glory. We can't. Well, we can definitely tarnish the way others around us see his glory. Essentially, displaying God's glory is making God look good. That's what it is. (laughs) And that's like he really is. We make God look good like he really is. If someone looked at your life and what you say and what you do, would they say, I may not believe in their God, but boy, do they ever make their God look good? Or would they instead see hypocrisy or inconsistency? If so, what needs to change? Job did a fabulous job showing how great God was with his life, even when everything was stripped away. Or, really, especially... ...when everything was stripped away. Now, God, as we see, could brag all the more about Job and his heavenly counsel. And that's important. Because we might think, well, what if other people don't notice my integrity... What if they don't see this consistency? Now, I'm not supposed to show it off myself or brag about it myself, am I? No, no. We shouldn't seek to show show off any form of our own righteousness. But we still should openly make God look good in everything we say and do. This is what should be our goal, to glorify Him. But what this story tells us is that even if no one on earth ever notices... There is another audience out there watching our every move. In heaven. And so, how we respond to good or bad in our lives, in, in good or bad ways, reverberates in heaven. The all knowing God sees all, and He sees us, and He is pleased. our integrity, along with who knows how many other beings observing our lives and glorifying God because of it. Johnny Erickson Tata is someone whose name you might recognize. Uh, She's uh, well known for, she was paralyzed from the neck down as a teenager and has been in a wheelchair ever since. Uh, She's a well-known writer and painter and speaker and singer, all kinds of things now. But over time in her life, Johnny Erickson Tata had to come to grips with her own suffering. She really suffered in her life, and she had to come to grips with it, and she found purpose in it. And especially in the fact that patiently suffering can testify about God's glory to others, like we've seen, right? Right? But Johnny had a, a Christian friend named Denise whose suffering really bothered her. When Denise was 17, she got hit with a rapid progression multiple sclerosis. And within a day, she went paralyzed and blind and was hospitalized. And she laid in a hospital bed for eight years, unable to see or move, barely able to walk. Or to talk to others, sorry. And she had very few visitors. Eventually, Denise died. And and Johnny really struggled with it. So, thinking that Denise's suffering seemed totally pointless. Nobody watched her. Nobody noticed her witness. So what was the point? Then she was... Reminded of some Bible verses that talk about angels observing things that are on earth in the church or rejoicing with salvation or so on. And then it clicked. She thought, she said, I get it. I lit up. So her life wasn't a waste. Someone was watching her in that lonely hospital room. A great many someones. Angels and demons stood amazed as they watched her uncomplaining and patient spirit rising as a sweet-smelling savor to God. Tim Keller, who actually told this story in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, uh, he then goes on to propose a, a thought experiment to illustrate this point. And he says to imagine that tomorrow a special camera was going to follow you around and watch everything you did throughout the day and broadcast everything that you did and thought, even, to, the t- to TVs across the world. So Would that make any difference in the way that you live? Of course it would. Right. Even, the, even your smallest words or thoughts would carry enormous meaning, because you're knowing that so many are going to see it. It'd probably be both frightening and thrilling at the same time. And then Keller says this, But if Christianity is true, this is already happening. Don't you see that you are already on camera? There is an unimaginable but real spiritual world out there. You are already on the air. Everything you do is done in front of billions of beings, and God sees it too. And then to conclude his point, he says, No suffering is for nothing. No suffering is for nothing. For Job, it sure would have seemed like his suffering was for nothing. Totally pointless. But it wasn't. There was a heavenly reason. God had a much greater plan. If nothing else, God wanted to show his glory off to the universe through Job. And so when Job passed the test, choosing to worship God and maintaining his integrity, he had no idea the magnitude of the test that he just passed or the glory that God received. However, what we're going to see is Satan was a sore loser. He wasn't satisfied with the parameters of the test. So when God just started raving again about Job's integrity, Satan shot back. Look what it says right after God says, He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Verse 4, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh. And he will curse you to your face. Notice here that God was okay with testing Job, but Satan had a different goal. He wanted to destroy Job. God said, you've incited me to destroy him without reason. So Satan tells God, listen, God, Job may have passed the test, but you didn't let me go deep enough. If you jab the knife a little bit deeper, he'll for sure give in and curse you then. He will wear down. His worship will wear out. His integrity will cave. You will see. So, similar wager, similar test as proposed as before, except even more extensive this time, with, it, with a different focus. Instead of attacking Job's things, Job's health is targeted. Instead of testing Job with loss and sorrow, he will be tested with pain and misery. Shockingly, God again agrees to this challenge. In verse 6 And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Here's what we're going to learn here Maintaining our integrity may be tested by unexplainable trials. Our integrity may be sorely tested with tests and trials that are frankly unexplainable. Verse 4, then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. No one really knows for sure what the saying skin for skin meant, except that it somehow related to Job's physical well-being. And then he says, all that a man has, he will give for his life. In other words, a person will sacrifice everything as long as they can keep their life. As a dad... I tend to doubt that statement is entirely truthful. But, I mean, talk about the father of lies here anyway. So, Satan's lying, most likely. But, what Satan was, again, insinuating is that Job was selfish. That's how he handled his losses so well. He's only out for himself. And he's still worshiping you only because you've still sustained him. He's selfish. When God agreed to this second trial, he only demanded one thing. Spare his life. Attack the man. Take his health. Hurt his body. Just don't kill him. died, they never know the result of the test. And God still wanted a witness. Here's how it went down. Verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And we can't diagnose exactly what this physical ailment or disease was. Maybe leprosy, maybe not. Here's what we do know. It was loathsome, and it involved lots and lots of sores. So it was unbearably painful. And apparently, from verse 8, it was also very itchy, as Job would take broken pieces of pottery to scrape himself. Now, Even if you've had chicken pox or hives or really bad mosquito bites, I doubt you've ever broken a ceramic pot and itched yourself with its shards. This is brutal. This is a picture of misery. Job was probably drawing blood all over, scarring himself. And this is the very brief descriptions of the symptoms, too. Throughout the rest of the book, we get other hints of how diseased Job actually was. You see that his, his skin was darkened and peeling, constantly erupting with new boils. He had a fever, infections, failing vision, rotting teeth, a putrid stench. He didn't want to eat. He couldn't sleep. He struggled with deep depression, which led to extreme weight loss, as his bones, it says, stuck to his skin. If you can picture this at all, it's hideous. Job was tortured and disfigured and miserable. It's perhaps nothing we take for granted more than when we're in good health. We don't even notice it. We don't wake up in the morning and think, Hey, I'm feeling healthy today. Praise God. But whenever we get sick, all of a sudden, we notice our health all the time. How we feel becomes all-consuming to us. I mean, We get a paper cut or a pollen allergy, and that's all we can think about. I got a little tiny piece of glass in my foot this week. I had to stop everything until I got it out. In an extreme sense, Job must have been mentally consumed by this repulsive disease. So miserable, the verse 8 says, he sat down in the ashes. This is most likely saying that he left home and went over to the town dump or landfill where all the garbage was burned up and piled up into ash heaps. So Job felt like literal garbage. And he went where he wouldn't be a burden to anyone but himself. Our first reaction to hearing about Job's further suffering is quite possibly, hasn't Job suffered enough already? Hadn't he already proven the point? On one level, yes, but he didn't satisfy Satan, and God was okay with probing for more. It proved the point even more. Christopher Ashe says this, this proves that the glory of God really is more important than your or my comfort. In the end, it is necessary and right that this man should suffer personal and intimate attack upon himself so that we see absolutely and without doubt that God is worthy of worship. This is why God would agree to this test. Satan wasn't bullying him or pushing him around. That leads to some other questions, doesn't it, that we have about the relationship between God and Satan? Like, why, had someone asked me this, why was Satan even in heaven here? Wasn't he cast out? Well, yes, he was. And he lost his former position as a, a chief good angel. In heaven, He lost that, but apparently he retains some level of access, maybe only when God summons him. But we also believe that even that level of access changed after Christ's death and resurrection. That from passage in the New Testament, it seems like Satan has officially been banished to earth, which is why he still ferociously attacks God's people every chance he gets. Job's story can be scary to us because we fear something like this might happen to us. But we can take comfort that because of the cross, Jesus has won the victory over Satan. He may still be a vicious enemy, but he is a defeated enemy. Destined to be banished even from earth one day. Like we sang, lo, his doom is sure. But we also have other questions. On an even grander scale, we wonder, who is responsible for Job's suffering? In verse 3, if you notice, God said that Satan incited him to destroy Job. But if you remember the story back in chapter 1, it's almost as if God provoked Satan first, right? And then, and then after that, Satan attacked. Also, Satan challenged God. He said, stretch out your, your hand and smite him. And then God told Satan, all that he has is in your hand. Same in chapter 2. Stretch out your hand. Behold, he is in your hand. Then to make things even more complicated, some of the disasters we've seen were done by people. The Sabians or Chaldean armies. So, did these people hurt Job? Or did Satan? Or did God? Who actually did these things to Job? Did God take away, or did Satan take away? The answer is yes. Both. All of the above, if you will. Paradoxically, but it's true. We can't fully comprehend how God's sovereignty and human responsibility fit together. Or in this case, how God's sovereignty and angelic or demonic responsibility go together. The fact is, the Bible often speaks of more than one will being at work in any given action. That more than one person or being are being at work, they're acting concurrently or compatibly with each other at the same time, parallel. So, the foreign armies really did attack Job. And they were responsible for it. Meanwhile, Satan also really did attack Job. With uh, purely evil intention. And meanwhile... God really did sovereignly allow the test with good intention. And so does this mean that God was responsible for the evil that was done to Job? No, no. He willed it. He allowed it. He did not inflict it. But does this mean that everything ultimately came from God's hands? Yes. Don Carson explains, he says, The losses Job faced were, on the natural plane, the result of a mixture of human malice and of natural disasters. But behind them stood Satan, and behind Satan stood God himself. God was still sovereign and all-powerful and not evil, Totally holy, even if he used some evil things to accomplish his greater plan, his good plan. Randy Alcorn says this, he says... Job recognized that regardless of Satan's role, God remained in charge. Satan did appalling things, but Job saw them as coming from God's hand. Job did not say, the Lord gave and Satan has taken away. They might still be bothered by this, wondering how God could ever even allow evil. And the truth is, we might not ever fully understand this on this side of eternity. But we have good reason to trust that God knows what he's doing and that his plans are greater. I love how Tim Keller explains it. He says, God only allows Satan to accomplish the very opposite of what he wants to accomplish, he only gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. God hates evil. He's against it. He didn't create a world in which evil existed, but he permits it. Why? He permits Satan only to bring evil into Job's life in such a way, in such an amount that actually completely defeats Satan's real intention. Satan is only allowed by God to actually defeat himself and achieve the very opposite of what he wanted. He permits evil and suffering to come into your life only to the degree that it defeats the actual intention of Satan for you. Does that sound familiar? What you meant for evil, God meant for good? Now, I just tried to explain a lot of things to you, which may or may not make sense to you, though I hope some of these answers can help you, to help you to trust God in this. But here's the crazy thought. Job had none of these answers. He had no idea what was going on in heaven. To him, it was all unexplainable. Therefore, his integrity was being fiercely challenged by these inexplicable trials. Would he maintain his fearing God, his trust, his worship, even if he lost all his health and had no idea why? Or did he have a right to waver a bit? To start thinking or... Saying certain things. Well, he could have. But he didn't. He passed the second test, too. Look at verse 9. Then Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Remarkable. Exemplary. Stunning. Godly. Job's wife's response is also rather shocking. His last family member turned on him. And this, is, this must have only intensified Job's misery. We know Job had a wife, but this is her one and only appearance in the whole book. Now, her response may have been wrong, but if you think about it, it was understandable. Right? She had just lost everything as well. All of her kids died. And now, with her husband's failing health, she seemed to be losing him too. Under this intense immense grief, she faltered. It's only what we'd expect from anyone, right? Now she apparently just wanted her husband to let it all out and stop suffering. She was wishing him the peace of death like many a spouse would have done. Come on, Job. Death would be a relief to you. Just curse God and get it over with. But regardless of how noble her motivation may have been, her recommendation was wrong. She was telling Job to do exactly what Satan hoped he would do. And this reveals another truth, a very simple truth to us today. Maintaining our integrity can be hurt or helped by others. other people can either help us maintain our integrity or hurt and, and hinder our efforts to do so. Job's wife literally told him to give up on his integrity. It wasn't worth it. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Same words that God used. He holds fast his integrity. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Francis Anderson says at this point, Job's trial enters a new phase, the most trying of all. Instead of helping, The words of his wife and of his friends cause him more pain and put him under more pressure than all the other things that have happened to him so far. He never curses God, but all his human relationships are broken. Incredibly, Job resisted even his wife's temptation to curse God and give up on his life. He said his wife was speaking foolishly. And then it says that Job still didn't sin with his lips. Notice again, what Job said about God was most important. Satan predicted cursing, Job's wife encouraged cursing, but Job only blessed. Likewise, what we feel and think and say about God is the most important thing when we suffer. More important than anything else, It's what we think about God. In contrast with Job's wife, there are another few people introduced at this point in the story. Job had three good friends from some point in his life, another time, but who were obviously very close to him because when they heard about what Job, what happened to Job, they didn't just shake their heads and shed a few tears. They left their homes far away to travel and come be with Job in his time of pain. It says this in verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him. They came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Many people have visited a friend or family member during or after a sickness, only to be shocked by their friend's altered appearance. Perhaps you have as well. But no matter what Job's friends had heard, Nothing prepared them for this sight. They couldn't even recognize Job anymore. He was gaunt and disfigured and scarred and mutilated and and deeply, deeply sorrowful. And so they broke down themselves, loudly weeping and Tearing their robes and sprinkling dust, all all these cultural signs of grieving. Kind of like what we would do wearing dark clothes to a funeral today. That would be one form of showing that you're grieving. This is what they're doing here. Now, we don't know for sure that what they did was a good model for us. But scripture does clearly tell us, and in Romans it says, to weep with those who weep. So I tend to think that their first action here was an appropriate and good action. And verse 11 says their goal was to show Job sympathy and comfort him. This is admirable. Even though, as soon as they opened their mouths, they would start failing. Here they do well. Sometimes there are no words to say that will help. So we should remain silent. And simply cry with those who are crying. Be a shoulder to weep on. Hold the box of tissues. When someone you know is grieving, don't assume that you need to explain theology to them. Don't assume that you need to tell them something when you don't know really what to say. Just love them. Show compassion to them. Be a true friend and be there. You may just show immeasurable help to them in their pain. We've reached the end of this passage, though not the end of Job's turmoil. But before we close, I think we skimmed over a very important statement back in verse 10, which points to something we really need to take to heart for all, every season in our lives. And that's this, that maintaining our integrity means receiving whatever God gives us. Maintaining our integrity means receiving whatever God gives us, whether good or bad. I get this from the one time Job speaks in this passage to his wife in verse 10. He said, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, the word for evil there is not speaking of moral evil like sin. God doesn't give that. But this word is speaking more of, of harm or trouble or disaster. Anything we see as bad. Your translation may reflect that. Anything we see as bad is this evil here. So, Job's wife wanted him to give up on his integrity. But Job said no. No. If God, if God gave us everything good that we have in the first place, why can't he give us bad? I may not know what's going on, but I choose to believe he does. So I will receive the good and receive the bad... And worship him regardless. Francis Anderson says, Receive is a good active word here implying cooperation with providence, not mere submission. When the bad as well as the good is received at the hand of God, every experience of life becomes an occasion of blessing. But the cost is high it is easier to lower your view of God than to raise your faith to such a height. Again, God's glory is what is at stake. Every time we receive harmful things in life, we have a choice to either lower our view of God or raise our faith. Is God still sovereign and loving And good. And will he see us to the other side? May we have faith. If we doubt that God is sovereign in the midst of our suffering, we can look to Job. But much more so, I think we should look to the greater Job. Jesus Christ. When we read the Gospels, the picture we get is of a suffering and a sovereign Savior. Together, suffering and sovereign. Jesus was in control every step of the way towards Calvary. He chose to suffer. Jesus was sometimes supported by his friends, more often burned by them. He was more betrayed, more alone than anyone, including Job. And on the cross, Jesus suffered the most extreme, excruciating physical pain, even worse than Job's. And he went all the way, even experiencing death throughout the whole ordeal. Jesus held fast his integrity, his perfect integrity. And don't miss this. He did all of this in order to give us greater good than we could ever imagine. Jesus received the worst evil in order to give us the deepest good. Jesus received the worst evil in order to give us the deepest good. Salvation and mercy and love and grace, forgiveness and acceptance and adoption and so much more. And even far better than these gifts, in Jesus God gave us himself. Therefore, we are all invited to believe in Jesus and receive God's love. We can humbly place ourselves under him, knowing that we have done evil against him, but also knowing that in Jesus, God offers us incomprehensible good anyway. And I challenge us all who have received so much good, so much abundant good from God's hand. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Remember his blessings. Remember his goodness. Remember his greatness. And then bless him no matter what he allows to come your way. Let's pray. God, you are good. even when we don't see it at all. You are great even when we don't feel it. You are glorious no matter what happens to us. May we grasp these hard truths, these deep truths, these incredible truths about you May they change us. May they prepare us. And may we worship. Yes, this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would Would you please?